Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is David Cox. David is the director of David Cox Architects, an RIBA chartered architectural practice. Uh, David, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning, David. Pleasure it is having you with us. Um, I suppose we should begin by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although we are slowly moving out of social restrictions, we have been in the grip of the COVID-19 global pandemic in one form or another for the best part of the last 14 months. So thinking about that whole period by and large, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? Well, it's looking a lot better uh, today than it did a year ago. Um, to March 2020, um, the construction industry came to pretty much a shuddering halt, um, unexpected, um, and creating a huge climate of uncertainty um, and worry. Uh, so building sites just shut down. All the building, um, all the people working on the building sites uh, went home, and we in the office obviously um, went to work from home as far as possible. Um, but we really had no idea what was going to happen to the construction industry over over the next, I suppose we were looking at a couple of months, um, and then that's dragged out until today. Um, I suppose at today's point, we are looking a lot more optimistic. Things have opened up again. Um, building sites have got their um, processes in place. Everyone's much more careful about how they're working together. There's a lot of um, discipline and organization on site to deal with the crisis. Um, so people are pretty much getting back to the way they were working, um, it, it, you know, just before the crisis hit in, in February, March 2020. And I suppose given the importance of construction to the government's Build Back Better agenda for the economic recovery, it may well be an exciting time for the industry now as we hopefully move out of this lockdown. Um, it could be exciting. We're hoping it's going to be exciting. Uh, we're not quite at that stage yet. Mm. Um, so the uncertainty is still there. Um, and a lot of the funding and a lot of the backing for the project is still um, a little bit in the balance. Um, but certainly um, people are t- talking as though that's going to happen in the next few months. And I kind of, obviously, the, the phrase is build back better. Um, what we don't want to happen is that we go back to a construction industry that was exactly the same as before because it did need a bit of a kick and it did need um, to be uh, dragged into the 21st century. I think it's an industry that's still working very much with 20th century values and that needs addressing. 
Mm. Interesting point that, and hopefully we don't lose sight of what we've learned during the uh, the pandemic in that respect. And speaking of things that we have learned during this time, um, you have mentioned that one thing that you've embraced um, over the last few months is remote working practices, at least in the early stages of the pandemic. And it does have its advantages and disadvantages that. So how would you say it's been adapting to that more flexible working model? Uh, well, I think I think for us it was mo- it was more of a disadvantage. I think architects are, are we're a creative industry, we're a visual industry, um, and we work much better when we're in a room together um, and we're looking at models and we are um, working our way around drawings around a table um, and in discussion with people face to face. You know, moving their arms around, pointing to things on the drawings and so on. It's, it's a very visual discipline, um, and and the act of sketching and drawing out solutions to um, problems is something that works much better when we are face-to-face than it does in remote working. So it's that kind of creative kindling that got lost. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I suppose, we do, we're also, we also need time to focus and um, just get down and get a house down and, pro- and plow through work. So we are a bit more like other industries in that regard and, and, and people being able to take one or two days out of the office in the week is actually quite a productive thing um, if they can get, if they can take a task away and process that task over a, a good clear couple of days without distraction. Mm, so nice. I think it's got its good mm. points and its bad points, um, and it's definitely something that we want to keep. We've all discussed it in the office, and people like the idea of working in the office for three or four days a week um, and then having one or two days at home. I certainly do think that that hybrid approach does have its advantages, doesn't it? Because it brings the benefits of the work-life balance that we've seen from working from home. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that working from home isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, certainly not in the architectural industry. And so having that ability to socialise, get together creatively within an office space, that's going to be hugely, hugely important in the long run as well. It is, yeah. Most definitely. And just thinking about sort of more broadly now, a lot of business leaders that I've spoken to on this uh, program have told me that they've learned an awful lot from the last 14 months, despite it being quite a challenging and quite harrowing time for some. Would you say that that's the case for you and you come away having learned a great deal and are almost stronger for the experience that you had? Um, Well, I think... I think everything that tests you um, leaves you stronger if you come out of it. I'm hoping that we are coming out of it. Um, I wouldn't be able to write a list of 10 things that we've learned from the COVID crisis, but I do know that we've learned stuff and we've developed as a team um, because of it. And actually, I think we've developed as a society. I think when you have conversations with people now, um, it's a, it's a kind of it, it's got a very subtly different. Uh, feel to it than it did before the crisis when everything was just progress, progress, progress and now it's sort of stepping back a little bit more and saying, well, we're human beings, aren't we? And what, what do we need to work together as human beings and what should we be doing? And I think I think that kind of step back and that pause is something that is going to teach us all um, some very valuable lessons. I'm not sure that we'll, I'm not sure yet whether I'm optimistic enough to think that um, society will uh, keep learning those lessons but um yeah i think they're there and i hope i hope we take them on board and use them going forward it certainly has amplified the importance of mental health and well-being as well as the work-life balance i suppose they tie in without quite being one in the same those aspects and 
How important exactly do you think mental health is within leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of the people around you, especially during a crisis like this? Uh, I don't think it can be overemphasized, can it? I think um, I think we're all talking about well-being, um, and 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 what it what it's done actually in our industry is it's brought well-being to the forefront of design. Um, so there's a lot more conversations in the construction industry um, now about making sure that buildings encourage um, that feeling of well-being, that there's the right amount of daylight, the right amount of ventilation, um, the right kind of feel for spaces. Uh, that make people feel that they can stop and pause and sit down in a corner and have a conversation or read a book. Um, so I, I think I think architecture will have changed because of um, uh, this new emphasis on well-being, um, and and it, and it was there. It has been there for the last um, probably five years, I think, um, or more. But I think the crisis has really brought it into focus and made it um, one of the one of the most important things that we address when we think about creating buildings. Um, obviously, in the office, um, just just trying to talk about uh, mental health and so on. We have had uh, issues with 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 some of the staff. People have found it hard. Uh, it's the uncertainty, the worry, uh, is you know it's it's taken its toll, uh, and that's something that we're still working through. And just thinking about sort of how the government has acted throughout the uh, the last 14 months. There's been a lot made, of course, of how they've handled the pandemic, but what can't be denied is that they've done an awful lot for industry stepping in with several business support measures, including the um, business interruption loan scheme, the furlough scheme as well, that so many have taken advantage of. Um, but what needs to be seen now from government to sort of help construction really thrive in the post-COVID world? What more do you feel needs to be done as we sort of move into that next phase, hopefully? Well, I think the construction industry itself should take, as I said, I think it should take a long, hard look at itself. It's not a diverse industry. It's not an industry that um, likes to adapt to new technology. Uh, And I think the construction companies that embrace that um, and address it really f- with, in a forthright manner are going to be the ones that, uh, that do the best over the next 10 years. Um, and I, I I think the construction industry as a whole needs to pull its socks up, uh, employ more um, ethnic minorities, employ more women, and make building sites look more like uh, the mix of people that you see on the street, which at the moment they don't. Um, and nor do the um, meetings that we have in the construction industry. They're also very white and male still. Um, and I suppose in terms of the wider uh, building sector, property sector, again, it's it's a it's a bit of a shudder, isn't it? Because nobody really knows what the office looks like anymore. Mm. So trying to design an office over the next few years is something that's going to be uh, quite a challenge. And that. And that runs through, actually, I think it runs through every sector. So certainly in the residential, we've had a lot of questions about people um, living in flats in our country, uh, smaller than they should be anyway, uh, with some windows to the to the living room, windows to the bedroom, but no balcony, nowhere to go outside. So if you're in lockdown for a month or two and you're not allowed outside, uh, then you have no outside space whatsoever. And that's not a healthy way to live. Mm. 
Exactly right. Something certainly to think about, as is that point that you made just now about bringing the construction industry at large into the 21st century, seeing more diversity in the sector workforce, because that is something that's certainly been exposed during the pandemic and deep seated inequalities within society. And that is something certainly to keep a close eye on. Um, With regards to the future now, David, just more specifically to your own business, just before we do wrap things up, um, we are hopeful. We don't have a crystal ball, but there are signs of green shoots starting to appear so with that in mind where is it ideally that you are hoping for your company to be this time next year as fingers crossed we leave social restrictions behind for good consolidated i think is the word i hope so at the moment we have a lot of projects that have been marking time um, and are not moving forward and have been waiting for the end of the crisis and some more certainty Uh, once those come online we're going to have a very busy uh, 24 or 36 months um, and I think um, whether or not we need to re-examine those projects in the light of the last 12 months, I don't know yet. And, I, and as I say, I don't know what sectors are going to be emerging from the crisis as the strongest and, and what kind of hybrids there are between living and working and what opportunities there are for creating new building types that hopefully um, address the way that we might want to live in the next over the next five or ten years. And I hope that we can be a part of that conversation. Exactly right. Um, it's a time of stasis almost in this sort of interim period and hopefully that sort of ends uh, before too long. And as we start to see the fog lifting and we get a clearer picture as to what the recovery is going to look like, David, I do think it would be really beneficial to welcome you back onto the programme with us and see how things are getting on because it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you on today. And once again, thank you ever so much for your time and joining us. Yes, that would be great. I would be uh, very happy to do so. That's fantastic, David. And just before we do part ways, um, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but we are certainly getting much closer. That's correct. The same to you, uh, Scott. I wish you all the best. And that also extends to the listeners tuning in as well. Please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others because it does make such a key difference in keeping people safe. It was a pleasure to welcome David Cox, director of David Cox Architects, onto today's show. And coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be talking about his take on the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks to come. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm. but actually I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well those who went over the top i think soon got a very substantial pushback and one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate people could say i'm terribly sorry we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment that that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks. And uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges, and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.